Hi and welcome to Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and by my side, as per usual, I have Martin Jansson, associate professor in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. And we're very honored today to have Professor Susan Wolf with us, uh, who is Edna J. Corey, Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, who has previously held positions at Harvard University and John Hopkins University, and who has worked on many interesting topics, among them free will, moral luck, moral saints, love, and the meaning of life. Welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here. And as one of our ambition is to let our guests talk about their philosophical development, a good idea might be to start from the beginning and if and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts. Well, I think I, at some early age, was asking the question that in philosophy is sometimes phrased as, how do I know that when you see red, it's, you see the same thing that I see when I see red? Uh, I'm, I have this vague memory of wondering about that. Uh, I don't think I knew what philosophy was. I didn't identify it as philosophy, but it was the kind of thing I thought of in my nerdy childhood. The inverted spectrum. Mm-hmm. The inverted spectrum. Yeah. Well, um, it is right. It's the same question, right? You know, right? I didn't know from spectrums. <laughs> right. Right. Well, when so start? Did you start thinking about philosophy more? Um, well. <laughs> Yeah, so my uh, I went into university as a, a math major, uh, having taken a summer program where I studied logic. I kind of had an intense class through Gödel in high school and f- fell in love with that. So I went to college to do logic, uh, and happened to have a very philosophical uh, professor as you know, the main logician at my university, who had uh, created a program in math and philosophy. He was a student of Hilbert's, so he was very... What was his name? Uh, Abraham Robinson. Uh, and he knew that my... Other than math, my favorite subject was literature, <laughs> uh, and somehow thought, you know, I should try philosophy. That Also, logic was taught as much in philosophy as in math departments. So, uh, yeah, so I just sort of stumbled into it because of that. The first um, intro to philosophy class I had, the first book we read, this was rather daring for a professor, I think, was to read Spinoza's Ethics. Uh, Not an easy book for, well, not an easy book. uh, Now I read it, I said, I don't understand it at all. But at the time, I was much more... uh, Overconfident, <laughs> and um, and it set out like a you know logical, you know proof you know with axioms and and so this combination of talking about the big questions of uh, the human condition in this logical form was just wonderful to me. I thought you know there's nothing more mind expanding than this. So uh, yeah. And where was this Princeton? Uh, Yale. Yale. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and when when do you start thinking about maybe making a career out of this or or doing a PhD? On? Well, yeah, um, this was in the seventies, uh, an early stage in 
women's liberation, second wave feminism. I was brought up uh, by a pretty traditional family and who had no expectations of about my future at all. I mean, they were just happy I was more or less normal. I didn't have, so there were no kind of career pressures or I didn't think really about a career at all. Uh, and so I loved philosophy and my teachers were encouraging. They said, why don't you apply to graduate school? And I thought, well, if I don't have to pay, I will go to graduate school. If it would cost money, I will do something else. And um, But I did get a fellowship. And so I just sort of kept going along. I always had a, a backup. You know, if philosophy doesn't work out, I'll move on to plan what, B. What would you do then? Well, the backup, which might not have succeeded, who knows, uh, was to become a pastry chef. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. That was <laughs> one of my other loves. <laughs> Second passion is dessert. Yes. <laughs> Anyway. And, and for your PhD, you moved to Princeton. So then, right, went to Princeton, planning to do philosophical logic, work uh, with Kripke and David Lewis, and um, but having had most of my background in math, I thought I should study other subjects first to get a, a wider background. And uh, so Thomas Nagel was there at the time, Richard Rorty, a lot of people who have are now, uh, well, they were well-known already then. Anyway, um, I just got fascinated by these other subjects and, uh, you know, stumbled along, you know, a away from logic towards the meaning of life. <laughs> right. So was that your topic of your dissertation? Or? Uh, free will. Was, free will. Yeah. I sort of approached it historically. Um, I wrote on Kant and Sartre and then my own ideas and that sort of. Who was your supervisor during that time? Thomas Nagel. Okay. Yeah. He's he's famous for writing a lot of stuff. Right? Yeah, he's yeah he's famous <laughs> for a lot. The view yeah. from nowhere is often yeah. talked about. Possibility of altruism. Uh, what is it like to be a bat? He, uh, he how a, did that? He's a wonderful you? philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> did he have any effect on your uh, on my thinking? Yeah. Uh, well, I, it had an enormous effect on my thinking, but uh, it's a little bit difficult for me to say what what that is. He had the, um, I think, relatively unusual uh, approach of never assigning his own work. Uh, he just he was a he is a, a very pure philosopher. He just cares about thinking through these questions, and so there was there's no ego in there at all. And so, embarrassingly, I, I'm not much of a scholar, so I didn't, since he didn't assign any of his work, I, I didn't read any of it. Um, and, but we would, you know, meet every week and talk about my ideas. And, uh, and then after my dissertation was handed in and I was waiting to, for it to be read by the, all the readers to be examined on, and I had some free time, I thought, well, I think I'll read some of Bagel's work. And then I'm reading some of his very famous work and realized he must have known all along that I had never read this because it was totally relevant. He never mentioned it. I, like, oh, if I had read this, I would have gone off in a totally different direction and he knows all of this. But anyway. Uh, Did you tell him afterwards that you... I never told him that, no. I 
just started referring to it, making it obvious that I had read it and mm. pretending that I had read it all along and it just never came up before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But your PhD, that's not a work in, in formal philosophy. You sort of... Right, moved, I never... I had already... The, yeah. yeah, by the time I did my PhD. Oh, I see. So once you had completed that, what, what did you want to do next? Uh, you mean in... After your PhD? In uh, terms of... Research. Uh, yeah. Well, I worked... Yeah. Or, was it, or, or was it given that you should continue doing research after your PhD? Or did you consider going into pastry again? Well, again, the thought was always, you know, we'll, I'll take it as far as it goes. Yeah. Uh, and if it doesn't go, I move on to plan B. But it, I, I've been very lucky in my career, so uh, I, I just never did get around to the pastry. Uh, right. I mean... Informally, it's I, never I, too late. Yeah, right. Right, right. I hope not. Um, so I right. So I, the dissertation had sort of led up to some of my own thoughts about freedom and determinism and responsibility, and uh, I spent a long well. So then I continued working on that f- as one strand. I there were kind of two strands to my career over most of it, uh, one having to do with freedom and responsibility uh, and the other having to do with uh, the relation between moral and non-moral values. Uh, I have a general tendency to think um, that philosophers, in particular moral philosophers or practical philosophers, uh, give morality too dominant a role in thinking about um, what reasons we have, what it is to live a good life. And so uh, along with the kind of free will strand, I, I wrote this paper called Moral Saints, uh, the central idea being uh, that if you think about what it would be like to be a, a morally perfect human being where everything you did was as morally good as possible, uh, well, I, speaking for myself, I, the thought was, I wouldn't want to be such a person. I wouldn't want my children to be such people. I wouldn't want those people to be my, they wouldn't be my best friends. So there was this sense that, look, thinking that it's always better to do the the morally better thing led to this apparent paradox that morality isn't all there is and we should stop. So this is in 1982, right? That was the, yeah, that was when it, yeah. So I had a question about that because I read the opening line of that article, which yeah. is quite uh, interesting. It says, I don't know whether there are any moral saints, but if there are, I'm glad that neither I nor those whom I care most are among them, who I care most are among them. Could you elaborate? What, what do you mean by that? Why don't you want to be in? Why wouldn't anyone want to be a moral saint? Well, I, it, I didn't mean to say, uh, and I don't at least now think it's true that not anyone would want to be a moral saint. But my thought was, not everyone wants to be a moral saint. Not everyone, nor is that something that those of us who are not attracted to moral sainthood should feel guilty or apologetic about. There are other great ways to be. So another sentence from that essay is yeah, you can be perfectly wonderful without being perfectly moral. So I, you know, just think about who your role models are. Who, who is it that you think, oh, if I could just be like that. Well, f- 
some people will choose perhaps Mother Teresa, um, but uh, Gandhi, right? But a lot of us don't. I mean, uh, you could choose Ella Fitzgerald. Well, I, I don't know. Right. I don't know how to tr translate this into the oh, I uh, think I understand. to the right yeah. ones. But there, you know, uh, actors, politicians, uh, artists. That you know, philosophers. Philosophers. I definitely have some role models there. So, uh, yeah. And so the thought is morality is an important part of what it is to live a good life or be the kind of person you want to be. But it's it's still only one part. And having a sense of humor, having, uh, you know, a passion about something. Uh, and it could be art or philosophy or sports or... Are you uh, saying that you yeah. can't have humor and being a moral saint? Well, you, for one thing, that's a good question, I think. Um, certain kinds of humor you can't have and be a moral saint. And I confess I'm rather attracted to some of those kind of, you know, irony, satire, Groucho Marx. I, you know, they're, it, it's hard to put that together with being a real moral exemplar, I think. Um, Right, so there's a kind of mild, bland <laughs> sense of humor that's more likely to go with being a moral saint. I, that is a little unfair. I mean, I, a, a philosopher who who wants to, to push back against that could easily say, uh, at, you know, that that I was being simplistic about what, and it also depends on what you think the content of morality is. That's also controversial. So I don't want to say you can't. Be have a sense of humor, but you you can't have every sense of humor, and you uh, I mean, there's such a thing as not taking yourself too seriously, which again, I think it's hard to put that together with someone who is c concerned to you know be as moral as possible. It you know a kind of obsessive. It seems to me can reach the level of obsession. Can I ask a few questions about the other strand? When yes, when you sure. finished your your PhD, what, how did you think about free will at that stage? Or ah, well, um, the view I developed at is is the view that what f that uh, the valuable what's valuable about freedom, uh, the kind of freedom needed for responsibility which at least at the time I was thinking of moral responsibility, that is, responsibility to be a moral, you know, how morally good or bad you are, how, uh, is not at, at its core a metaphysical property, which is what most philosophers assume it is. And, um, but it's rather, um, at its core, what's needed is the ability to understand and appreciate what reasons there are, what makes one choice a right choice and another choice a wrong choice, and the ability to act in light of those reasons to choose what to do. So um, the ability to act, uh, to act according to your values and to form your values according to the true and the good, as I put it in the early days. Uh, and 
though you might there might be metaphysical requirements to have those abilities, that's really what you want. And so uh, one thing that comes out of that view is that if a person uh, does see the true and the good, let if pardon those expressions for the time being, um, you know, understands, oh, th- you know, this person is in need. I, you know, my own uh, life is, there's nothing great at stake for taking time off, jumping into the water to save the person or whatever. I, I should do it and then I do it. Uh, that's, that's what it is to be praiseworthy, to be, you know, you did what you did responsibly and you're praiseworthy. But that doesn't actually require any kind of metaphysically problematic stuff. I mean, if you happen to be smart enough, perceptive enough, lucky enough to have, to be able to notice that, yes, this person is in need and I can save her life or, you know, you know, give a starving person some food, I should do it. It doesn't take I mean, if I'm determined to understand that and determined, understanding that, to act on that, that's fine. So it suggests that determinism isn't really incompatible with free will in the positive case. In the negative case, since the freedom you need is the freedom to appreciate the true and the good, if you're determined not to do that, then it looks as if you might need determinism not to be true in order to... in order to be blameworthy Um, but not in order to be praiseworthy so it's kind of a surprising result so was this your view then or is it this your view now or this well that was my view then yes Um, I don't really disagree with it now I think I am paying attention to different things but yeah Yeah. but it stayed more or less more or less the same Yes. Well, you know, it's very hard to tell from the inside whether your view of has really changed or just evolved. I like to think of it as having evolved, gotten clearer about certain things, gotten a little more nuanced. But, um, yeah, I don't think I've changed much. So, so I was meaning to ask you, and this relates to, to that, if there's been sort of any grand shifts in your thought or any sort of position that you used to to endorse but now uh, object to some some sort of what you feel to be uh, insights concerning something as some sort of major transition or development in your thought well yeah i don't know that any of the shifts would be called grand um but uh so regarding that strand the uh freedom and responsibility strand um I think two things have shifted or been clarified to me. Um, One having to do with reasons and appreciating reasons, uh, and the other having to do with the importance or unimportance of the history leading up to the reasons you take yourself to have now. Uh, so with respect to reasons, uh, it, it was common, I think it's still common in philosophy to think of um, a person's understanding in terms of what beliefs and desires they have and uh, 
and right so there's perception and there's reasoning um, but I more and more think there's a difference between a certain kind of superficial ability to have you know to understand things or believe things and a deeper richer notion and that that's of enormous importance to the kind of responsibility that we care about. Uh, I mean, you can imagine being programmed to have certain kinds of beliefs and desires. So uh, you have them, and you can then be programmed to have second-order beliefs and de- you know, second-order desires about the desires you have that are still kind of flat. And um, and I, not, as opposed to someone whose uh, beliefs, desires, concepts get richer through... Uh, kind of constantly updated, integrating more and more experience and so on. And I think it's become much more important to me to realize that that's what we're looking for and to understand what it is to, when I talk about uh, the ability to see the true and the good. I wouldn't call it the true and the good anymore. It sounds too objective. <laughs> but the ability to understand and appreciate, you know, what matters about people or why, you know, someone is nice or interesting or why this would be the right thing to do. Uh, so I, I would want to talk about it in a much more nuanced way and uh, talk about all these different faculties by which we develop understanding and appreciation. Uh, I also think in the early days, the I didn't I thought, well, if you learn something in a certain through a certain history, I guess I took that to be really important to whether you were free, whether you could, whether the beliefs that you had now were freely yours, truly yours, the kind that you could base a responsibility off of. Um, and I, I now don't think. That's really true. I mean, the history will be evidence for what kind of understanding you have about or what the what level of um, yeah, what the content of your belief is beyond just the words. But that's just evidence. I mean, what's really important is do you really understand? So take a, a simple case. Um, you might believe that. Uh, Honesty is a virtue and that you should be honest. But what do you mean by honesty? Well, a first uh, attempt at saying it means you should tell the truth, right? Uh, And that is the kind of thing that I'm calling flat. You could say, yes, you should tell the truth. I I know the difference between truth and falsehood, and I should, and therefore I have a desire when asked a question to tell the truth. Uh, I mean, that is honesty of a kind, but it's, I think, the real virtue of honesty involves something more than that, something that would both make you realize when, um, well, I mean, we there's tact, there's uh, the potential conflict between, um, between truth and, well, any number of things that would endanger people, or, I mean, you know, the obvious case there's an axe murderer at the door saying do you know where this guy is and you're at, uh, so um, yeah so I guess the thought is in order to have 
the virtue of honesty, it, it's not enough that you speak the truth. That you speak the truth. It's not enough that you believe you ought to speak the truth. You have to sort of appreciate when to speak the truth. Right. right. And but appreciating where I mean, knowing when or appreciating when involves understanding, well, what's so good? What's good about speaking the truth? What's you know, how is it connect to other things that matter? So it's a just a kind of richer notion um, that's more integrated with other other values. Um, and so whether, for example, someone is praise, praiseworthy for, I mean, you know, take a case where uh, it's tempting to lie and instead you tell the truth, uh, whether they deserve praise, whether they're responsible in a way that makes them praiseworthy is not just a matter of whether they tell the truth because they have programmed in themselves a principle, always tell the truth, but something richer than that. Um, yeah. You touched upon the topic before a little bit about moral luck, and I know you wrote an article about the moral of moral luck. Yes. What is moral luck, and what is the moral of moral luck? Right. Well, uh, right. So moral luck is actually uh, related to responsibility. Uh, the f- the phrase was coined by uh, Bernard Williams, the philosopher. Um, You're quite inspired by him, right? Yes, yes, one of my superheroes. Yes, uh, uh, not a moral saint then. He is not a moral saint. He right. I mean, I think probably the the, uh, the courage to say who wants moral saints also is inspired by Bernard Williams, mm. but uh, who never said it in so many words, but part of the. the the tone of his work. Uh, So the idea is um, that we tend to think that moral, that you should only get moral credit or moral blame for what is under your control. But as Williams pointed out, there there are enormous numbers of ways in which whatever we do uh, is in part conditioned on things that are not under our control. And uh, we can't purify our evaluations to separate the non-voluntary from the voluntary. So there are a lot of different kinds of moral luck. Uh, there's uh, you know, luck in, in your gene, what genes you have, luck about you know, where and when you lived. You know, if you grew up in, uh, in Germany when Hitler's coming to power, the the moral issues that you have in front of you are going to be very different moral challenges than and so you might be lucky or unlucky to be succeeding or failing at those challenges there um the one that i mainly wrote about and the one that's kind of the most obviously uh part of everyday life is often called luck in how things turn out and one of the classic examples is uh, a driver who drives recklessly to some extent. I mean, you could be driving drunk, could be driving, um, having not in the in the paper. Well, what were you suggesting? Uh, speeding. Well, well, speeding would be an example of it, but what's, what's behind the speeding? Um, and so in the paper, I was talking about someone who breaks 
didn't have his brakes checked. You know, maybe the brake light came on, but was waiting another week or two, right? So you could compare two drivers in exactly the same position that way. They both had brake lights that they were taking, you know, a couple weeks before going to the mechanics. One of them has the bad fortune of having a child, you know, run into the street and uh, and hits the child. The other one doesn't have any bad fortune. No child runs across the street. Um, we can even imagine that that second driver reads the paper the next day, hears about this first driver, and says, oh, my gosh, takes the car right to the mechanic, gets it fixed. So nothing bad. He, he has done nothing. I mean, he's what he's done is he drove recklessly or drove with def- defective brakes, but... No harm. He's caused no harm, whereas the other driver caused a great deal of harm. And on the one hand, our attitudes to the two drivers might be quite different. Certainly, if you were the parent of the child, our, your attitude would be quite different. But um, and how should we feel about that? How should the law feel about that? That's one set of questions. Um, to which it's tempting to say, well. What we should, in terms of moral judgment, they're equally blameworthy, but we don't, you know, it's hard to epistemologically to know that they drove equally recklessly. We might not ever know about the one. We would know about the other. So you could say, look, they really are morally in the same place. Um, You know, they're morally as much to blame as each other, even though one of them has caused a terrible harm and the other one hasn't. You might think you might be attracted to that. You might not. Um, but I, I think if you ask yourself, well, how do you want? How do you think if you're the driver, you ought to feel? Ought not just how you would feel, but how, how ought you to feel? There, I have no temptation to say, you ought to feel the same way. I mean, a driver who didn't, a, the driver who hit the child, for such a driver to get to then say, well. You know, people drive this recklessly. You know, people don't get their brakes checked all the time. You know, it just happened. I had the bad luck of having a child. That would be an appalling reaction, right? Um, at the same time, it seems to me the driver who didn't hit anyone and then got his brakes fixed to say, oh, my gosh, I could have hit a child, to feel quite as horrible as we actually think the first driver should feel, that would be kind of, well, again, obsessional, a little bit. You think, what is wrong with this person? This is not mentally healthy to go that crazy over something that actually you didn't, you know, didn't happen. Um, so it seems to me there is something important going on that needs to be explained. That, that was the, that's what moral luck is. Yeah. That's the issue I tried to take up. Um, in short, my answer, if that's what yes, you would like, very is, is that um, what's really going on is that, on the one hand, they really are equally morally guilty and blameworthy for their driving, right? Um, but there's another aspect to to living morally well, respond, which involves responding to your situation in a good way. And if what your situation is that you 
have found yourself having hit a child. I mean, that you you have hit a child. You haven't just found yourself, right? Uh, then that sort of calls up or demands a response in you that will include feeling awful, <laughs> probably, but in any case, you know, wanting to redeem yourself, to, you know, reach out. It'll, it will demand all, all kinds of... And I guess more generally, take, you know, take responsibility for what you've done. You have to own that this was me. Not that... Obviously, nobody does these things on purpose, but not only did I not do it on purpose, but um, I mean, that that's just not the point. It's that I did it. Um, and it, at least in a case like this, I did it, and I am, as a result of my faultiness, right? Um, right, well, so the other driver didn't hit a child, isn't in the situation in which he's called upon to have that response because... That's a response to a situation he wasn't in. So I, th- I think the difference in the two response in the two people's biographies are a result of this combination of, on the one hand, uh, being responsible for how well or badly you're acting, um, but also how well or badly you're act you're responding to a situation which includes the si- facts about what you've done what 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 your causal history or or you know has brought about so, yeah. um, I'd, I'd like to take the opportunity to ask about another subject as well because i know that you've written on the meaning of life yes and i'm guessing this connects to the second strand the value strand of yes of your research right what's the meaning of life yeah well I actually haven't written on the meaning of life. <laughs> I've written on meaning in life, which I uh, think it's useful to distinguish. Um, when we ask what's the meaning of life, at least what that calls to mind to me is mainly the, is a question, you know, does human life have a purpose? Or is there something um, in virtue of, our, you know, that we're sort of put on this earth to do? Uh Presumably, something that's given to us from outside or from some metaphysical system. Uh, but then we also use the term meaningfulness or meaning in life uh, in a different way, where we talk about whether one's life is meaningful. So when you ask about the meaning of life, usually it's a question about the species as a whole. Like every, either human life has a meaning or it doesn't. We're all in the same boat, for better or for worse. Um, but meaning in life, I think there are variations. You can uh, One life can be more meaningful than another. You can, your own life can be more or less meaningful. You might find yourself at a certain point thinking, there's something missing in my life, which you call meaning you're lacking some kind of meaning um and you try to change your life so as to give it more meaning so it's not so much a big metaphysical question as a well as something more individual uh and more obviously evaluative i think uh right so that so my question is what is 
my at least my main question is what is that what is it to live a meaningful life and I do in the end think there's some connection between that and the more familiar question but uh, it's the first question that I'm especially concentrating on um, what's, what's yeah so what I take that to be is um, well let me just start with I, I my initial thought about this question was reacting to a common view uh, that's very subjectivist, that you know, meaning in life is uh, what you make of it, uh, that you know, having meaning in your life is a matter of uh, finding your passion and pursuing it. Uh, and my, th- my own thought was not that that's always false, but it's not in itself a guarantee because it depends on what your passion is, basically. So my um, my considered view is that meaning in life uh, is a function of or arises from this um, uh, combination of subjective and objective value. That is, to uh, your life is meaningful insofar as you are subjectively attracted, that is, passionate about, uh, you know, deeply engaged with something of objective value, something that's worth being passionate or in- engaged in. Um, uh, so it's a combination of, of those two. Right. It's these, it, right. It's when, right, what we care about, we can also step back and regard as worth caring about. And it is connected to the strand of involving moral and non-moral values because it seems to me the range of, uh, you know, substantive things that people that people can be attracted to that are worth caring about go way beyond the range of moral values. Though moral values are among such things. So, what what are what what's your research looking like today? What what are your uh, what am I doing now? Yeah, what are you doing now? Well, um, at the moment, my project is uh, in a way that may actually combine these two strands. I, I haven't worried about that too much. Um, it's kind of about the idea of responsibility, kind of about the uh, idea of what it is to be a, a self, uh, or more specifically, what it is to be uh, a distinctively human self. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, and connected to some of the more obscure things I said earlier, uh, I'm t- trying to pursue uh, the ways in which understanding responsibility and what it is to be a self in terms of rationality and self-control is too limited to capture the things that are really all the things that are really important to us I mean it it, I think once you're sort of conscious of that all kinds of concepts that uh, have a role in a lot of uh, philosophical thinking at least in ethics um, take on a different shape and and definitions that we've been working with uh, seem in some way too crude or to be missing too much. So, uh, yeah, uh, what what it is to have a 
to value things, what it is to have a character, what it is to be responsible, all those things seem to me to take on kind of newer, more complicated shapes once you uh, sort of step back from a very narrow paradigm of what it is to be a person. Thank you so much for joining us here. Yeah, thank you. We also want to thank Larm Studio for the possibility to record there and Peter who handled the mixer table. Thank you. Thank you so much.